0: Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally, starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Seven years ago, I had what is none other than really a hilarious introduction to my guest today. I was told by a mutual friend of mine and my guest that this particular person wanted to interview me for his video podcast program that was quite popular. And I was given a hotel address and the number of a hotel room. And I showed up having just been at a conference wearing my cute little dress and my cute little boots and knocked on the door, already kind of awkward showing up at a hotel to meet a guy who I had never met before. And when the door opened, it was just full of video equipment. And I just had this sort of flash to being a teenager and watching Irene Cara in the original Fame and just sort of this whole Horror movie setup thing in my mind. But once I got past that very initial moment, I met Jonathan Fields. Jonathan is a dad, a husband, an award winning author, an executive producer, and host of one of the top ranked podcasts in the world, Good Life Project. He's also the founder of a series of companies focused on human potential, currently helming Spark Endeavors, where he developed the groundbreaking Sparketype assessment. This tool has been tapped by over 500,000 individuals and organizations to identify, embrace, and cultivate work that makes people come alive and helps leaders unlock purpose, engagement, and potential. His latest book, Sparked, which we're going to talk about today, with the subtitle Discover Your Unique Imprint for Work That Makes You Come Alive, which comes out on September 21st, 2021, is both a rally cry and a field guide to reclaiming work as a source of meaning, joy, and possibility. Jonathan also speaks and facilitates globally for groups and organizations of all sizes, both virtually and in person. His work's been featured widely in the media, including the New York Times, Fast Company, The Wall Street Journal, Inc., Entrepreneur, Forbes, Oprah, Oprah Magazine, Elle, Allure, The Guardian, and many more. Now, it's not that often that I actually have men as guests on my podcast. Um, I really try to emphasize women's voices. And also, there are a lot of wonderful people with phenomenal credentials. So why am I having Jonathan on my podcast today? Well, Jonathan, that minute I met him, in that hotel room, and we had our interview. I just knew that he was a brother from another mother. And um, it's been seven years of a deep and very dear friendship. And Jonathan is the person who I reach out to and call. For example, when I had a challenging breakup with a boss who is very famous in the wellness space and needed some comfort and reassurance that everything was gonna be okay, Um, when I was being threatened by said person. And Jonathan was just that person I reached out to and called. And I didn't even know him that well at the time when I was working on my own recent book, Hormone Intelligence, but also my book before that. Jonathan was the person I would call to help me keep things in perspective. Because when you're writing a book, there's a lot of pressure from the publisher for that book to succeed in certain externally validated ways like New York Times bestseller lists, and sometimes books make those no matter how good they are or not good they are, and sometimes books don't make those no matter how good they are and not good they are, and Jonathan is that person who always brings me to center, and months before my last book was coming out, he sent me an an email that just was so beautiful. It had me in tears, and it was just a long, unsolicited email about whatever the external validation is that when I wake up in the morning, I'm the same person I've always been, and that beautiful person that he reminded me that I am with my own internal spark and light and what I bring to the world. Jonathan's work is really all about what we bring to the world, and his new book, Sparked, is all about that. And one of the blurbs on the back of the book, which I've had the privilege of seeing ahead of time in a watermarked version, says... In an era in which so many of us feel disempowered and without clear aim in our work, Sparked returns us to the power and purposefulness of archetypes that remind us of who we are so that we are enlivened no matter where we are and what we apply ourselves to. The result is a disarmingly personalized manual that cracks the code of coming alive in our work so we can be the contribution that society needs from us now. I invite you to join me in welcoming my dear personal friend, a person who I lean into for moral and personal support, and who really is a brother from another mother, Jonathan Fields. Jonathan, thank you for joining me on my podcast. I feel like a little kid interviewing the master because you're the master podcaster. So. (laughs) <laughs> the master caster
1: well i feel like i am always sort of like a little kid talking to the master of like living and well-being so um the feeling is mutual in a different mm. context um but i'm just so glad to be able to hang out with them um, my sister
0: <laughs> yeah i'm really glad too you know when i met you it just felt so resonant i don't know there's something about the way we do life even though we do life really differently like our personalities are different in a lot of ways I'm much more, even though I'm a preferred introvert, I'm comfortable as an extrovert. And you're definitely like more of that preferred introvert, do the introvert thing, even though you are great getting out in front of people. But- Yeah, no, no I'm I think card carrying. <laughs> yeah, you are card carrying. And um, Like Susan Kane is your good friend and she literally wrote exactly. the book. <laughs> but we do life really similarly. And there aren't a lot of people that I feel like I can lean into the way I can in- it's, I'm going to cry because I'm like so deeply grateful that we have this really fun friendship, but that you're somebody who somehow always returns me to center. And so I just extend deep gratitude to you for that. And it's a real deep um, privilege and pleasure to share that with my online podcast community.
1: Mm, I'm just, I feel the same way, of course. And um, I'm just so glad to be able to spend a little bit of time with you jamming yeah, and talking about ideas that I think hopefully matter to both of us. <laughs> And, and to more people that are listening in.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really where the jam for me is I hope we can bring out today. I have no doubt we will, but one of the things that I think we do the same and feel the same is one, we are very committed to living authentically to our path with integrity in what we share, walking our talk, living our truth, but also we both have found ways to craft our lives doing the work we love. I mean, if Joseph Campbell's like do what you love and the money will follow thing is true. I think you and I would do what we love, even if the money didn't follow, but part of your work has become helping people do what they love so they can feel good in themselves. And maybe that becomes a career path. for I And mean, so you've been doing that for a long time, but can you, can you take my online community back and because you started out as an attorney on Wall Street ish it wasn't always quite this vibe that you have now
1: no and um the more i think about it the whole the four and a half five year gig as a you know a lawyer first working for a massive federal government agency and then for like a massive private law firm doing all sorts of you know like securities work and where the stakes were giant numbers and that was the aberration for me i was i grew up you know like the son of a a hippie Potter mom and uh, sort of like a professor dad who was like just deep into research and um, both of them spent a lot of time really doing things that were close to their heart. And I did too as a kid and I did through college. I barely attended class in college because I had a passion for music and entrepreneurship and I blended them to create a company for like mobile sound lighting and disc jockeying. So I was out of clubs like every night until four in the morning our stacks of equipment, you know, like creating these environments and spinning music. And law school was definitely, um, people who knew me kind of raised an eyebrow when I said, I'm going to law school. And I did it in no small part because I knew that I had a sense that I was capable of a lot more intellectually than (laughs) than my, I think it was a C plus average graduating college showed. And I thought law school would be something where you know, it would train me with a lot of skills that whether I went into the practice or not would be just super useful for me. It would teach me how to think and argue and write and speak arguable, whether it actually did that or not. But um, so when I went to law school, I had taken a couple of years off also, and um, I went there on fire, you know, so I was all in and studied nonstop and ended up doing really well in school and had opportunity when I came out. So I stepped into the the field and I I stayed there for about five years, a better part of five years until my body really just started to tell me in a lot of different ways that something wasn't right. And to the extent where I ended up in emergency surgery, um, having a giant infection abscess grow in the center of my body and eat a hole through my intestines from the outside so that was a wake-up call that sent a me A little back bit, to, yeah? Yeah. You know, it's funny because had I known now what, or had I known then what I know now about the way that you can look at a career and the way that you can actually really largely reimagine something to make it so much of what you want it to be, I think in hindsight, there's a safe bet that I might have stayed in the practice of law, but- zoom the lens out and looked at all the different ways that I could have done it differently in a way that really aligned with who I was much more closely but then I didn't have those skills I didn't have that lens so I hit the eject button and I went from that to uh you know like mega firm power prestige business card to making 12 bucks an hour as a personal trainer learning the fitness industry
0: and that didn't come out of nowhere let's just let everyone know that you had been a gymnast and quite physically Engage yeah. as a competitive athlete.
1: Yeah, I, I've had a lifelong fascination with the bo- human body, with the way it moves, and also just with the mind body connection, and also just the fundamental nature of human potential
0: mm-hmm. um, and how
1: we step into it. So, I had always been very connected to movement and fitness and well being, and had completely abandoned that also when I was practicing law because I was literally working 100 hours a week. So, I was a disaster physically. And I wanted to step back into a space of entrepreneurship and also well-being, where it was not just my personal pursuit, but also my professional endeavor. That led me to learn the industry from the ground up. And once I felt like I had figured out, you know, what was working and what wasn't working, and I started to believe that there was a lot more in that space that was not working, I said, you know, there's a way to build a better mousetrap. And um, I opened my first facility and grew, and it was a you know, five thousand square foot sort of high end private training facility, and really rapidly we grew that to something pretty substantial um, by simply doing the opposite of everything that the mainstream <laughs> folks were doing in the industry. And about two and a half years after that, I got the Jones to sort of like do my next thing. I I sold my interest in that company and focused a lot into the yoga world in New York City. And this was then 2001. I was married, I had a new home. I had a three month old child. You know, like the, the, my wife and I were sort of like doing the dance of trying to figure out which way was up. And I signed a six year lease for a floor in a building in Hell's Kitchen, New York to open what I thought would be and hoped would be a great yoga studio and community and center of a gathering. And the date I signed that lease was September 10th, 2001, the day before 9-11. And get uh, chills,
0: just like yeah, my whole body. Yeah.
1: It was a moment, you know. <laughs> um,
0: and we're both New Yorkers, born and bred. Right. So yeah, it was huge, huge.
1: It's big. And and of course, you know, we knew somebody that didn't come home that day. And it was a big wake-up call for me. And on the one hand, I'm like, you know, I'm I'm wondering how could I justify launching a new business into such an, an uncertain future when I've got, you know, new home, wife, kid. And on the other hand, the fact that I knew somebody that didn't come home, who was a young father of, you know, two, and husband, really reconnected me with this notion that we, we've got one shot, yeah. you know, um, and we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. But to the extent that we can actually make mistakes of taking action, and then having to redirect course rather than not taking action at all from a place of fear, I would I would rather choose the former than the latter, and then figure out how to fix things if it didn't work. So we went ahead and we launched it and it turned into this just incredibly beautiful, um, brutal, and as um, I think Glennon Doyle uses the word brutiful, um, which I love. I remember the first time she said that to me, I was like, ooh, that sums up so many experiences where there's beauty and grace and emotion and passion at the same time. It's brutal and hard and devastating. And it's actually exactly the way that it needs to be in that given moment. And that was that experience Bringing people together in a space of healing and movement and breath and community at a time where the city never needed it more, and we flourished as a community. We flourished as a studio, and over time, flourished as a as a business as well. And seven years in, after teaching a lot, a lot, a lot of students and training a lot of teachers and being, you know, a, a part of this community and to a certain extent, a, a co shepherd um, in the community, it the, the entrepreneurial impulse in me. Really start to kick in again, and it was time to move on. A place like that, a business like that, which is so driven by community, it needs somebody who is invested. And I was starting to check out, and I knew it. So it was time. So I was very fortunate, you know. Like that was a thriving business at the at that same time. So I was able to exit that company as well. And and then I really I had sold my first book at that point because I had developed this passion for writing and language and communication. And the maker impulse in me was just saying, I want to make with words. Right now, for this given season in life, and I want, and I would read things written by authors who I admired, and I would just read a single sentence over and over and over, and I was like, "How did they do this?" Because six words are making me feel things that you know, like an, an entire tome had never made me feel. Um, have you ever heard the story of Hemingway and the six-word story? No. So, I don't, nobody knows if this is true or if this is legend, but it's a beautiful story either way. The story goes that Hemingway, back in the day, sitting around a table, you know, like with a handful of friends and, and, and uh, arguing things out. And then uh, at one point, he issues a challenge and he says, I can tell a complete story end to end with a beginning, a middle, and an end in six words. And they're like, oh, no, you can't. But that's absurd. Nobody can do that. You know, and and he says I can, and he says you want to make a bet. And so like money is wagered, like it's down on the table. I may mix up the order. And the six words he says are, "Baby shoes for sale, never worn."
0: Wow! Oh my gosh, that's so heartbreaking and moving, and so much there. right. Wow! Right,
1: s- wow. six words. Oof. You have literally just been told an entire story that that may well break your heart. Totally. And I and I hear, and Hemingway is some like he's sort of like is somebody who's. As a writer, blows my mind um, with how he can evoke things.
0: I was reading Mark, one of Margaret Atwood's books, and I'm I'm reading it. I read analog books in bed at night and on the weekends whenever I can. And I was reading one passage, and I just remember saying out loud, "Oh no, she didn't!" And read it again and again, like, "How did she do that?" She just conveyed so much about the psyche of a human being in these few sentences. I just can't. Like, just marveling at it and of course then when yeah. I write my own books I have this impossible standard <laughs> that I'm trying to keep right. up with right and and
1: I'm I'm literally still to this day like I will yeah. look at a sentence and I'll say 10 15 years I might be able to come close to writing this sentence but something in me is wired in a way where I'm like that's actually okay with me I'm all in because I love the pursuit of craft you know and it's not just about creating something to me it's the development of craft and mastery so that bug caught in me. And, you know, really since since then, um, I have been writing and speaking and building companies and media and, you know, Good Life Project podcasts. But really, also the through line behind almost all of this for the last two decades, tying back to probably right around 9-11, has been a deep exploration and deep questioning around what does it mean to live a good life? And since a big part of that life for most of us is work. You know, like how do we show up in that context yeah. in a way where it actually, it matters to us and it matters to the world.
0: So can we unpack something that you started with, with your work life or kind of got into pretty quickly was that you had this massive medical emergency that your part of your body was literally like eating away at you. You had this abscess, right? Your body was trying to wall off something and not to be too metaphorical about, health issues. But often these things, I mean, sometimes these things can just happen out of nowhere. Like you just have appendicitis, you just have an abscess and something was brewing. But when you look back a couple of years before that, did you have signs in your life or in your body that you weren't in what I like to call alignment? To me, alignment is when, you know, your heart, your mind, your values, and what you're doing are all kind of consistent. And to me alignment is a real physical feeling and, and for me when I'm out of alignment let's some, let's say somebody like offers me an opportunity and I'm like ooh shiny golden object but when I really sit with it I'm like yeah that's not fully in alignment with who I am. I actually feel it physically. So did you have some physical signs that you weren't in alignment or or cognitive, mental, emotional signs?
1: Oh, yeah. Yes. And all all of the above. And I completely and utterly ignored them. You know, like everything hurt. Um, I gained a bunch of weight. I was in terrible shape. I was eating horribly. I was probably more stressed and anxious. Like I would, there were days where I would sit in my office and just fret. And what I've learned about myself over the years, it's actually even more so now, which is not necessarily a good thing, is that my mind can take a lot more than my body can. Hmm. I sort of de- I've developed the skills of mine and the practices so that I can endure pretty high levels of sustained uncertainty with high stakes and I think I've trained myself in that because as somebody who is a maker and who's been an entrepreneur from the time I was a kid you're always living in the space of uncertainty and you never know if anything's going to work and and you know, like things are always breaking all the time and as you get more grown up and the stakes just keep rising um but the tell for me is always my body it's my physical well-being so eventually the tell is both like eventually my mind will keep pushing and pushing and pushing because it can handle a lot more than my body and then my body starts to give out and then my body eventually it's like my body is saying dude if your brain doesn't listen i'm going to take you down to your knees and eventually it does and mm-hmm. it's happened you know probably more than once that was a really that was a major example of it and it's something that i still Grapple with because as somebody who's who continues to build and live in the space of high stakes uncertainty on a pretty regular basis because that's that's what breathes me. I have over the last dozen years developed you know, like probably much more involved and much more deepened um, practices that allow my mind to be okay, which in a way is good because I'm in a space of equanimity more, but in a way is bad because it'll also sometimes allow me to push harder than the rest of my system knows is healthy for me. And so there's always this feedback mechanism going on with me. And what I'm trying to do now is just really tune into that more and more because, I mean, you know, I mean, I have to imagine so many of your patients walk in with some version of a really similar story.
0: Oh, yeah. And it's really hit home for me. You know, you were very intimately connected through, well, we're intimately, we're personally connected and I love your wife and, you know, we're like family. In fact, you said that to me during my book launch, we're family. And it really, really resonated so deeply with me. But, um, you know, I know you're in the push right now with your book and it, it is actually quite exhausting. And this past week, I actually was, Mon- it was Monday and I'm not usually a tired person. I'm like pretty energized. I'm, taking naps is not a thing I usually need to do. It's not how my stuff shows up. And it was maybe one in the afternoon and I was so tired. I felt like I had taken a sedative or something. I felt like narcotized or like I had had like wine and cheese and Chinese food or something. I just felt like I was so tired. I couldn't keep my eyes open. And I went out just to take a minute. Like I try to respect my body. So I went out on the back porch to just read for a few minutes instead of pushing at work. And I ended up falling asleep for three hours, which is so Mm. not what I usually do. And I woke up. And I said to Tracy, my husband, for those of you who don't know, I was like, huh, I wonder if I'm like coming down with something or like what's going on. He's like, maybe you're just tired and just giving ourselves permission without having to justify or look for the reason just to rest. I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on the conversation of rest. It's so powerful to learn to listen. And for some people, these things do show up physically. For some people, I find that their physical self keeps pushing. I see this a lot with women I work with who, for example, are really high-intensity yoga practitioners or really high-intensity Um, runners like long distance runners or marathoners that their bodies will keep going, but where they're having the breakdown is emotionally. They're irritable. They're not sleeping. They're snapping at people. They're depressed and they're looking for the reasons inside themselves, but they're not necessarily recognizing that something going on in their life, a relationship, a job, et cetera, is out of alignment. Okay. So toward that alignment, you also said something really powerful, well, you've said so many powerful things, but something that you said really struck me, which is that when you left law as a profession, in retrospect, you realized that if you had had a certain set of skills in terms of reframing and reinventing and rethinking, you may have actually stayed in that profession and maybe even loved it. So I want to get to your book and we're we're heading there because this is so relevant. Um, A few things here. One is so many people right now, especially with the pandemic, right? And and we're in an inflection point because I know you started this book a couple of few years in earnest before the pandemic you. and now it's coming out in the pandemic. So there's some things I want to talk about about that, but you, we were having dinner the other night, you, me, Steph and Tracy, and you called, you told me about the great resignation, like just people leaving jobs and mass and looking for other jobs. And it's just kind of a crazy moment right now. So For people who are experiencing unrest or disalignment, if that's even a word, it is now. I figure now I'm a New York Times bestseller. I can make up words or just like, that's a word. I tell that to my husband. No, that's a word I know. Um, How do you know, or how do you guide or advise folks who are like, I'm really not happy in what I'm doing right now. And I don't know if it's the job and I should leave it or if it is in me and I can shift it?
1: Yeah, that is such a great question. And so many people are in that question right now. That phenomenon that's being called the great resignation, That, depending on the the study that you like look at, supposedly some anywhere from 25 to 60% of people are either in the midst of changing jobs or they're seriously thinking of doing it or considering it. So this is a year of just profound, profound change and shift and disruption. But I don't actually necessarily think that is the um, optimal next step for so many people. I completely acknowledge the questioning. I think it's an amazing time to be asking big existential questions. So many of us stepped into our professional life when we were a lot younger in a different phase, and there are bargains that we made. When we did that, you know, we said certain things matter to me, and I'm willing to sacrifice other things. And generally it was that money, status, power, agency, control really, really mattered to me. I wanted, I want to work my way up the ladder. I want money, I want security um, and prestige and power along with that. And we were willing to sacrifice a lot of our well-being. We were willing to sacrifice meaning, purpose, sometimes our values along with it in the name of doing that. Um, and I think what's happened now is that that thing called a midlife crisis, which is generally just an existential crisis where you're really, it's a crisis of meaning. This season has dropped us all into that simultaneously en masse at the same time from the outside in. didn't ask for it. We didn't hit a certain age and start wondering. We didn't have the kids graduate and go to college and we're done paying off the mortgage and now we're examining literally our world view has been shattered um everything that we believe to be true has been thrown up in the air and within that is like work and how what we look to what we look for that to give us the thing that we're going to spend most of our waking hours doing for the rest of our lives and we're we're doing all this questioning so I think it's amazing I think it's horrifying that this is what, Is going on around us. And there's a lot of pain and suffering that's a part of it. One of the things that I see as being powerful that's emerging from it is this questioning, like deep questioning about the bargain we made up till this point and whether we want that to be the bargain that we continue to make for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years of life. What concerns me is this phenomenon that says, okay, no, I actually don't want that to be the bargain for the rest of my working years. And then this thing that says, and the next logical move for me to do right now is to just blow up everything that I've built up until this moment and start over. And that could look like leaving a job and going to a new company, a new industry, completely changing what you do, you know, like wholesale. Those things may actually be really smart things to do. They may be the right things to do, but they're rarely the right first move, you know, because the right first move is not to look at what you can change outside of your existence. The right first move is to go deep inside and ask yourself, who am I? What is my truth? What actually fills me up and what empties me out? Like, What is my impulse for effort that gives me the feeling of being alive? And what is the effort that actually leaves me just curled up in a ball in a corner, like hoping somebody else will do it and I never have to do it? And until we actually do that inner work, anything that we change to, the likelihood of that next thing being well aligned with who we are Or conflicting and leaving us a year, two, three years down the road with a new job, title, boss, company, and feeling the exact same way we feel now. You know, like you're leaving that to chance rather than saying, let me do the inner work, really understand what matters to me, what needs to be there in the next thing that I that I evolve to, and then start to make the call from there. And what most people will actually realize at that moment in time is that they probably don't have to blow everything up. In fact, they could look at their current thing and say, you know what? It's not giving me what I need. But now that I actually know what I need, I can start to see all these different ways that I could reimagine it. I can reinvent it. I can step into it differently. I can expand beyond the job description. I can help in other teams, opportunities, projects, even though it's not inside my job description, but it's needed simply because it'll give me the feeling that I want to have.
0: I love that too, because also like so many of the folks in my audience, and I know you work, teach teach a lot of entrepreneurs and folks in corporate. And so many of my audience are often moms who are working at jobs that are in healthcare or service or it could be any number of things and are also in a situation where they may be the primary breadwinner, the sole breadwinner, you know, an indie mom raising kids by herself and can't change her job circumstances right now, or at least not realistically in this moment. It's not so easy to just blow it up, but to find ways that she can look within and find what does, and we're going to get to this because you use this word importantly in your new work, spark spark her and how to find that juice within the framework that she's in. So what are some of the ways people can do that and and reinvent? And especially like how do you reinvent yourself in a job where perhaps you have a narrow specific role and definition but really what you want to be doing is something a little different than that but you fit a role in a company or how do you maybe do that if you don't feel like you can really approach your boss, if there's a boss involved.
1: Yeah. So let's see if we can frame this for your community as much as possible. I would imagine a lot of your listeners are probably um, solo entrepreneurs, private practice professionals in the health and wellness business. So on the one hand, they're their own bosses. Um, on the other hand, you're never your own boss. Your your clients are always your boss. Um, and you know, people come to you for a specific reason you know, um, if you have a private practice. So let's take a private practice professional as an example in the well-being space, right? How could that person reimagine it? So they showed up at work on a Monday and started feeling very differently about what they showed up at work and had the same name on the door and the same brand and the same website doing the Friday before. So it starts with me with understanding what is that impulse for effort that makes you come alive? I call it your sparketype. And these are a set of impulses that, that I've been researching for years. There are 10 different impulses and wrapped around each one of those is a set of preferences, tendencies, and behaviors that form archetypes. So I just call them sparkotypes because it's a fun way of saying the archetype for work that makes you come alive. So so what if you actually knew what yours was, right? Now, you might think one of them is actually called the nurture, and that's all about elevating others, giving care, taking care of others, lifting people up, walking beside them, through process of struggle suffering pain and offering a place of of empathy and compassion now you might think that you know well that's got to be the impulse of any private wellness professional or a coach but in fact you'd probably be wrong it may well be the impulse for some of them but let's say that you find yourself in this space you know and you actually and you've been doing it for a while and you're realizing it's just not giving you what you need and you've got clients and they love you but you're just showing up at work every day and it's just, you don't have the feeling that you want to feel from it.
0: And maybe you have compassion fatigue because being the nurturer, like for me, you know, you know mine and we can talk about my sparketype and then there's my Enneagram. And it's interesting because I just did my Enneagram for the first time, but my Sparkotype really matches my like first two main things on my Enneagram. And then my third thing is like a helper, healer, nurturer. But for me, the nurturing and healing is so, it's so ingrained in who I am. Like if I didn't do that, the rest of it wouldn't have meaning. But what drives me isn't necessarily first my impulse to like be a, you know, Florence Nightingale. My impulse is my curiosity and my like desire to figure things out. And so you know that about me. So it's really a great example. And you know how I've channeled that. So we can even, you can use me as a case study.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So like if you're showing up, you know, one of the things is a lot of times you may be offering yourself up in a way that is not aligned with what the deeper impulse is, because in theory, everybody would think that, well, if you're playing that role like you know your main thing should be driven by the desire to nurture to give care to take care of other people to relieve suffering and in fact your primary impulse may actually be like yours is which is the scientist which is a deep impulse to figure things out burning questions complex puzzles right so so for you in your private practice right if people are showing up and they really need help and they're and they're suffering and there's a lot going on with them but their problems are pretty straightforward. You know, it's sort of like they're coming to you and they're like, and you know, within a few minutes, you're like, Yeah, I, I got this figured out, and here's here's what to do. And in fact, it's resolved, and and they move on, they move on, they feel better. Amazing for them, and they love you for it. And in theory, you're doing this work and you're helping and nurturing, but for you. Over time, pretty safe bet because your biggest impulse is that scientist side, is the figuring things out side, you're going to start to get bored.
0: Well, and it's true. I mean, I love primary care and I love, you know, I loved working in the emergency department, for example, and anyone coming in as somebody I can help feel safe and help feel heard and help feel supported. But my drive is not to, and, and, you know, all power to and respect to anyone who does. But for me, like doing pap smears and ear exams for infections all day, for me doesn't feel like it's tapping into that deeper Sherlock Holmesian nature that I have. So even though I feel really challenged at times and it's really hard and frustrating and it comes up against my own sort of self-doubt and self-esteem to figure out harder things. I gravitate to helping people who other people haven't been able to help because the other people were looking at for like those simple things. And I'm like, okay, let's go deeper into the puzzle of why you have this complex constellation of symptoms. And so that aligns me with the helper part of me, but the curiosity part of me that really wants to figure out. Right. That's the wicked problem part of you. (laughs) <laughs>
1: you know and that is yep. that is
0: the scientist
1: impulse so you you've engineered your practice and now you're writing in your own research in a way where like you're going after the thorniest most complicated things that are really that because that there's something about that there's something about you waking up in the morning and investing a lot of effort in pursuing that that just completely joneses you it may be yeah. really hard And like you said, it may trigger other things around beliefs, just about you and your identity and self-esteem and stuff like that. But at the same time, it is the fundamental impulse. So, you know, so you sort of like reimagined yourself by saying, okay, of the universe of things that I could do in this profession of health and healing and medicine, you know, I could be um, somebody who's focusing on something fairly straightforward and and being successful in it, like on a pretty regular basis and simpler things and being of service. But that wouldn't satisfy the impulse in you. So you sort of reimagined what you do and said, this is the space where when I step into it, it may be hard. I may work a lot of hours, but it pulls me in. It sparks me. It makes me come alive because I'm aligning the funda- fundamental nature of the practice and the way that I, I step up and serve with this deeper impulse for effort rather than you know some sort of assumed way that I should be showing up in the industry.
0: So how did you first get the impulse to start exploring these impulses, if you will? What was it that said to you, let me unpack some of the patterns that I'm seeing? What what first inspired even you to look at those patterns and say, okay, something's happening here. And there's something that's happening that I'm seeing in the people I'm working with that this person gets lit up by this, but like, this is kryptonite for this person.
1: Yeah. So um, you know that phrase, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life.
0: Totally. You know, we both live by that
1: really. Well, yes and no. So, like on the one hand, I agree with it. And the one hand, I almost violently disagree with it. And and the mm-hmm. disagreement side is that the fundamental assumption of that is that work is bad.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: So what we're effectively saying is, you know, like there's a way that you can buy yourself out of work. And I'm like, I don't know. I know this about you. You love work. Like you work hard. You will spend 15 hours like deep into something simply because you're just you just want to get at it. And I'm the same way. I show up and I work really hard and I put in a lot of time. I love work. There's nothing wrong with work, but we've got this cultural association with the word work that says it's bad. You should try and minimize it.
0: Right. The four-hour work week has become sort of of like not
1: doing it. And I'm like, you know what? That's not true. Like. We need to break the association saying, you know what? Actually, work is amazing. I love the fact that I get to work hard and sometimes I toil and I struggle and then I figure things out and I show up in the world and I have something really meaningful to devote my energy to. And I don't care if it takes a ton of effort. In fact, I like the fact that it does. The problem is that when, when work is something that is not well aligned with who you are, then it becomes drudgery. So it's not that work is bad, it's that empty work is bad. So I've been fascinated by how do we do work that is not empty in fact? How do we do work that is the opposite? That actually fills us up, that gives you the that exists at the sweet spot between five things: meaning, flow where you just get absorbed in in the the expression of it, energy and excitement, expressed potential and purpose. To me, That's a Venn diagram. And the center of that is this feeling of coming alive or being sparked. And if we can figure out how to invest ourselves in work and get that feeling while we're doing it, that's amazing. I mean, give me as much of that as humanly possible. And so I've been invested in this question of what does it mean to live a good life probably for over two decades now. And what I've really come to over the last five to 10 of those is that we spend so many of our waking hours doing this thing we call work that what if we could reimagine it, you know, so that it would just give us so much more. And I started really wondering how I might be able to create tools or figure out problems or make things that would help us get to the fundamental question of what exactly is it that gives us that feeling? Because if I could, then maybe we could create something and put it into the world that would help a lot of people get to that place a lot faster and then start to do more of that thing. And that was really the genesis, you know of trying to see, like, could I actually identify what these underlying impulses are for different people? Are there a mappable set of them that we could actually figure out? And then if so, like, what would they be? And then could I build a tool that would both test the idea to see if it's real or not, and at the same time, potentially help a lot of people figure out what theirs were? And that's been a huge part of what um, um, I've spent my time really deepening into over the last chunk of years.
0: So it's funny that you brought up the five domains, I think you call them in the book, Mm -hmm. um, or sweet spots, because I actually have on my screen while I'm chatting with you, the one thing that I pulled up that I really wanted to make sure that we did dive deep into were these five sweet spots. And I just have to say part of why we're such good friends is clearly because we both use the term Venn diagram in an actual sentence. <laughs> <laughs> like I just, I've twice this week, I've said to someone, do you know what a Venn diagram is? Cause I think that that will explain what I'm talking about here.
1: So, you know, it's funny in, in the book, there's a diagram and that maybe that's what you're talking about. And when we had an illustrator do that, I said, okay so it's a, a Venn diagram, but I want you to actually, I want you to reimagine it. So it's not actually a Venn diagram.
0: Right, like, so it's and, not overlapping. And that's, right. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. So okay so purpose excitement meaningfulness expressed potential and flow. And I mean I really see how these show up in my life. I mean for me purpose is the first thing that drives me every day. It's the stories that I hear in my inbox on my social media. It's the purpose of showing up for other people in a way that I feel like I can help them and and share what I believe and then flow. I think for me the reason that I love the part of what I do that you talk about as maven scientist in my sparkotype is that it's, that's where I get lost. The two places I get lost in flow are when I'm completely present and engaged with another human being. And I'm in that space of empathy, listening and feeling and understanding. And when I'm in that researchy, putting things together. So for me, what really, when I feel like I'm most aligned and when I'm loving my work most is when I'm in flow. You know, like when you're, you just like forget to eat or pee because you're so busy, lost in what you're doing. Talk to me more and, and share with my audience more about these five sweet spots and why those are the ones you feel are where being sparked exists.
1: Yeah, so going back to my love of language and also trying to create tools and ideas that are useful. You know, I use the phrase coming alive or spark, but it's kind of a nebulous phrase. You know, it's subject to so much interpretation. So I said to myself, what am I actually feeling when I have this feeling like the world is as it should be even when I'm working really hard? And I started to deconstruct it and then I started to talk to other people and say like what are you feeling it? And then until I teased out these five different components, So one of them, like you said, is purpose, and that operates generally on two levels, a more immediate sense of purpose, like you're working towards something, you know what it is, and it actually matters to you. And then more broadly, that you just have a sense of purpose in life, that you feel like there's a reason that you're here. So that's one, purpose. Um, Flow, which you were just talking about, is this state where you feel like you're almost you become absorbed in the activity. It's almost hard to distinguish where you end and the thing that you're immersing yourself in begins. Yes, there's a
0: lose yourself aspect. Yeah, in it. completely. And like an immer- it's almost like a transpersonal. You are merged with a greater consciousness. That's the only way I can explain it. Like you're you're merged in something, and you you really do step out of yourself, but not in the way like when you're watching Netflix. It's in a more profound way.
1: Yeah. And in fact, I would even argue that rather than stepping out of yourself, you step into yourself.
0: Mm, mm -hmm, You know, it's sort of like
1: mm -hmm. the world around you ceases to exist. It's not like you're looking down on yourself. It's like you are inside and you're not, you're so inside, you're not even looking out and you lose a sense of time. You could be working for 10 hours, but you blink and it's like, oh wait, I thought that was an hour. What just happened here? This state has been well-documented and researched, um, especially by uh, someone named Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. He's written in detail about it and researched I can't well, you can it say his name. I can't it. say his It like took I, me like <laughs> years to research and ask people who actually knew him how to, how to say it. And, and it, it is one of the most incredible states to be in. And when we access it, not only does it feel amazing, but there are these other benefits, hypercognition, hyper-creativity, all these things that come out of it. So we produce work at an entirely different level. So purpose and flow are two of them, right? The third one is what I would call excitement and energy. In the business world, they sort of like would coin it as engagement. To me, I like to use just more everyday speak, you know, so I want to know that I'm excited to do this thing when I wake up in the morning, even if I know it's going to be hard and take a lot out of me and I'm energized by it. You know, it just, it doesn't deplete me, even if it's hard. I may be tired at the end of the day, but I'm not emotionally and psychologically depleted. I'm actually energized by it. So that's the third thing. The fourth is what I call expressed potential. And this is that thing where you know so many of us are walking around and we we have a sense of felt potential. Like we know that there's so much more in us, so much more to us that we could be bringing to the world or to a situation or a project or a job and yet we're not doing it. It's stifled or maybe it's undiscovered or maybe we just can't even figure out how how to unlock it and bring it to it. And when you're doing that thing that is deeply aligned with your sparkotype, something happens where it, it's like the gate to that wellspring of potential just starts to ease open and more of you starts to show up and you feel it happening, not because you're trying to willfully make it happen. It just happens. And that final state is meaning or meaningfulness. And that's the feeling that what we're doing matters You know, to us and maybe to the world, or maybe to people that we're in service of, that we're not showing up every day and just checking the boxes on somebody else's agenda that really we could care less about, but that we're actually showing up every day and we're investing ourselves in something that is deeply meaningful to us. And those five states combined, in my experience, when when I use the phrase coming alive or being sparked, it is the sweet spot between those five things. And what's interesting is Like, those are five different areas that are well researched. And each one of them individually has tremendous psychological and physiological and performance benefits. But when you overlap them, it just becomes this extraordinary experience.
0: My brain is kind of exploding here in that, you know, sometimes somebody may be in a situation where they are in a job that they can't shift right now. And maybe it's a little harder to find purpose in their job, but maybe there are other things that they can do in their life to find purpose that fills that feeling. And maybe then they find a way to bring that into their work. Flow, I mean, I just, I know in my own life, and this was so much easier before the internet. Even when I had four little kids at home, it was easier to get into flow because I could do things analog. You know, I could write by hand. There weren't as many things happening on the internet that you would go in search of. And I would have these hours that I really would get lost. And I feel like I'm not that highly a distractible person. I can get four hours at my desk and really get lost. But I find even for myself, there's a level of distractibility that I have to consciously create and carve out time to be in flow. And I, I think that must be really disrupting a lot of people right now. It's just that the fact that it's so hard to get into flow because there are so many millions of distractions.
1: Yeah, I have no doubt that that's true. I mean, especially over the last year and a half, two years, when so many of us have been functioning almost entirely through our devices or our computers, and Mm -hmm. like we're so, which means we're not just connected to the thing that allows us to do the tasks and processes and things that are important. We're also connected to like the distraction box, and because we've trained ourselves over a period of years, you know, through intermittent reinforcement and through a whole lot of programming that that really makes us literally um, at least behaviorally addicted in some way to this these prompts it is really hard. so at the same time it's a little bit of a double-edged sword you know if you're a scientist for example or a maven where the, the fundamental impulse is learning it's all about knowledge acquisition, you know this can be a tool where you can just go deeper and deeper and deeper like there're rabbit holes that will let you become encyclopedic about anything you're curious about. and yet at the same time while you're doing that, you may have notifications flashing off all over the place from this app and this app and this app and this app and this thing. It's really important that you say
0: this. I'm very disciplined about electronics. So I don't have email on my phone and I literally have zero notifications open on anything other than when I need to update my Mac, then I get a notification for that, which I may hit remind me tomorrow, like for two weeks before I do it. And then Tracy is like, have you updated? Um, But it is really important, these ways that we can protect ourselves or nurture some of these aspects that can be interrupted. Um, Okay, so one of the things that you said was, when you were identifying these sort of five sweet spots of being sparked, these five pillars, you stepped back to pay attention to how you feel when you're feeling sparked. And even just you and I looking at each other on Zoom right now, right? We're like these floating heads. And a lot of our adult human work lives now are spent from the neck up. We're talking and we're thinking and there's this disembodied talking head quality to it. And yet so much of this work that you're sharing, so much of this insight that you're sharing, and even going back to your story of getting sick involves actually spending more time feeling how we're feeling. Can you talk about how you get aligned with how you're feeling as part of your daily life practice?
1: Yeah, that's so true. And it's such a good point that you bring up. Um, we're we're basically like bobbleheads. <laughs> like in, in like we're digital bobbleheads, and occasionally we touch into our physical bodies. Um, and there's a lot of reinforcement to move through life that way. So for me, the way that I reconnect to my body is in no small part obviously, oddly it 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 is a brain-based practice, but it's really not, which is meditation, mindfulness. Well, there are three things. Mindfulness is one of them. I have a daily, like I wake up every morning. The first thing I do is a breathing practice and a mindfulness practice. And I literally, I place my left hand on my chest. You can't see I'm doing it right now. And then my right hand on my belly. And I'll spend a chunk of time just breathing into them one at a time. And that reconnects me with my breath but it also connects me with the tactile sensation of my hands and the feeling of my physical body moving as I slow my breath down and just brings me into my body. It's literally like I'm pulling me down from my head into my body through the mechanism of my breath and my hands. Meditation, from there I'll I'll drop into a mindfulness meditation, which is breath-based. So the whole time I'm sort of observing the sensation of breath in my body. Again, the, the side benefit of that is it's reconnecting me to the physical sensations of my being. The third thing for me is I get out and move, and preferably I'm out in Boulder, Colorado right now, which is this incredible blessing because now I'll generally wake up. You know, I wake up without an alarm clock generally around seven ish. I'll meditate, and about seven thirty, I'm out the door and I am walking in the mountains, um, doing like a gentle morning hike, and that is sort of like the thing for me that like that level of reconnecting with nature and moving simultaneously. Is so powerful for me. Like all of those things pull me back into my body and let me remember that, oh yeah, it's here, it matters. And it also is a really powerful source of insight and information for you.
0: I love that. And I just want to say, I know that there are probably a lot of moms listening going, yeah, right, I'm going to get up and my kids aren't going to jump on me mm-hmm. and then I'm going to get out for a walk. That's not happening. But I do want to really emphasize that for me as a mom of four kids, you can actually invite your children into these practices from a young age. And it may be that there are times where you get your deeper meditation time or your reflection time or journaling time or that long shower, which for me is how I do my meditation. Those long showers are a really powerful time for me.
1: Yeah. And to that, I'll I'll just add also like when our daughter was younger, I would be up and meditating generally even before she was up, which was pretty early. And Eventually, she learned that she would just kind of see me sitting in a meditation and she would sometimes just come over to me, kind of lie down, put her head in my lap, you know, and just... By there and I might stroke her hair while I was meditating. Like, and we were just there together. And it feels like, oh yeah, that's like a fantasy scenario that would just never happen with my kid. And sure, there were plenty of days where I had to completely tailor my routine and just say, I just need to sneak this in, in the margins. It's not going to happen first thing in exactly, the morning.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: But that's the reality of it too. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm not a huge fan of creating rigid practices and saying life needs to conform to the practices.
0: But it is important to have the commitment to yourself. Yeah. To Yeah. Right
1: you know know that they're important and then allow space for them to shape their way around the demands of your life at any given time.
0: Do you have some time to talk about the actual types the 10 types?
1: I do um okay. so I'll go through them probably a little bit quickly okay <laughs> um,
0: that's fine yeah even if we just say what they are and then we can talk about how our listeners can, learn about their, types. I think most importantly is like, what is the importance of the types and how do you apply those in your lives? And then we can mention what they are. And then hopefully everyone will be curious enough to take the quiz and get your book and bring it into their lives.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So there are 10 sparkotypes and these are the impulses for worth that make you come alive. Once you discover yours and you gain the ability to start to figure out how to realign What you're doing with those impulses, those five feelings that we've been talking about, they start to become more of a regular experience, and it's pretty transformative. So the 10 different sparkotypes are the maven. That's all about knowledge acquisition. It's about learning. It could be very narrow and deep, like you focus on a topic and go deep into it, or it could be broad. You just love learning about everyone and everything. And the ability to engage in that is the thing that makes you come alive. Behind that, we have the maker. The maker is my impulse. And that's all about making ideas manifest. It's the impulse to create, the process of creation. And funny enough, if you're a maker, you probably think that everybody else is wired the exact same way because you cannot conceive of anyone not having this impulse. But the truth is, many people are, but many more people are not. But it is such a powerful impulse, and it tends to show up very early in life because it's presented to you as an opportunity, and it's rewarded So it's nurtured very early in life in a lot of makers. This
0: is really interesting what you're saying, because, you know, for me as a maven, as I think my primary, even what you were saying about, like, you love to learn about everyone else. I mean, that is so much what drives me as a physician. I love, I love hearing people's stories. But sometimes, you know, I'll have someone on my team or in my life who was supposed to deliver something to me, let's say some information or whatever. And I'm like, why didn't they go deeper? This is so like, and I have to remember, okay, not everybody's impulses in life are the same as mine to not judge. And then I hadn't really thought about this, Jonathan, but how as parents or as entrepreneurs, we can actually learn our children's or our partners or our colleagues or our employees spark a type to, nurture and enhance, and also just understand and be patient with these various impulses and how they're different than our own. So thank you for bringing that up.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. So next up, we have the scientist that, as you know, is a big part of you. It's all about the impulse for um, burning questions. It's figuring, It's the figuring out impulse. Um, and you will latch onto a burning question, a problem or a quandary, like there's no tomorrow until you have it figured out. Behind that, we have the essentialist. The essentialist impulse is all about creating order from chaos, clarity, and utility, systems, processes, organization. If you're not an essentialist, you cannot believe that people like this exist. And if you are an essentialist, you wake up in the morning and you love being able to figure out how to make sense of things and the world. It's incredibly powerful. So behind the essentialist, we have the performer. Now, the performer on its surface may seem like, well, it's the performing arts, it's being like on stage. and Very often as a kid, it's channeled that way, but the fundamental impulse of the performer is to animate, enliven, and energize an interaction moment or experience that can show up as a parent, it can show up in a boardroom, it can show up in a sales meeting, it can show up behind a bar, and it's equally expressible in literally any domain. It's bringing moments and interactions alive. So after the performer, we have what I call the sage. The sage's fundamental impulse is to awaken insight. It's all about illumination. So for the sage, very often, you'll spend a whole lot of time learning a lot of stuff. But for you, it's not about the joy of learning. It's about having something to then turn around and share with others and bring insight from what you're learning to them. So it's more of a source fuel for the deeper impulse to actually turn around and illuminate and awaken insights in others. Behind the sage, we have the warrior. And the warrior's fundamental impulse is to bring people together and to lead them. That doesn't mean it's the skill of leadership. Anyone can learn the skill of leadership or any one of these things. We're talking about the deeper impulse for effort so it's all about bringing people together, very often a group that you're a part of, and then bringing them through an adventure uh, from, from where you are to something that is a deeply desired outcome. You're very likely the kid who on the playground at six years old was gathering all of your friends together to go on an adventure and like creating the whole trip and the experience with them and taking care of them as you go. After the warrior, we have the advisor and the impulse for the advisor is to guide towards growth. And this is all about creating a safe and intimate container where you actually work in a very personal way and build a relationship over time with somebody as they're moving through some process of growth or evolution. You serve as a mentor, a confidant, a sounding board, a coach, and you can play this role regardless of what your title is. But the thing that really lights you up is the depth and the quality of the relationship that emerges over time. And counterintuitively, really good advisors actually don't give a whole lot of advice. They learn to ask really well-reasoned and articulated questions so that the advice and the answers actually become elicited from the people that they're in service of.
0: You know what I really, I just want to say, I really love the way you're sharing these because you haven't articulated these out loud to me. I've only read them. And of course, I was one of your original Sparkotype quiz people. And But hearing you articulate them, orally like this is also getting me to realize that we all have some of these qualities and learning just about the sparkotypes is sparking in me the desire to actually nurture some of these aspects of myself Hmm. that I don't actually pay as much attention to, to kind of develop those, which I hadn't really thought of using the sparkotypes that way. I think about it like what's mine and how is that showing up and what's my you know, shadow side of it, et cetera, et cetera. But now this is really getting me interested in all of them. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. So the final three, we've got the advocate. Actually, no, we have two two more left now. Right, two Mm -hmm. more. We have the, uh, the advocate, which is all about championing ideas, ideals, communities, or individuals you're the person who wakes up and you're like, there's something that needs to have a light shine on it. Um, very often you're moved by a sense of injustice and it can be injustice towards somebody has a great idea but nobody's paying attention to it. It could be an injustice towards there are animals who are in need and being ignored. The environment is not getting its due or an individual, a person is not being heard or a community is actually and not being uh, given the attention. And you feel a a primal need to actually stand in a place where you can help them, that we can champion, you can bring the spotlight towards them. This again, usually shows up at a really early age. And that final one we talked about earlier is the nurture. That is an impulse to elevate others. It's to lift them up, especially and often when others aren't there to do it, or they won't do it. And that is a deeply empathic impulse. So a lot of times, You really feel other people's experiences and emotions and suffering on a level where it's almost like you can't not do this because to walk away from this impulse would be not just to walk away from their suffering, but to actually keep yours present.
0: And so within this framework, you have your primary sparkotype, your shadow sparkotype. and I know what we've talked about is your kryptonite. And it was really funny. So just for the record, y'all, and I'm sorry to anyone who's listening who has a newsletter, but the only newsletter that I allow into my inbox in my deep scrutiny of doing my deep work and not being distracted is actually Jonathan's newsletter. And I read his newsletters and he had one newsletter where he talked about his own kryptonite being like paperwork and filing like that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh my God, that is so my kryptonite. I mean, honestly, my husband... Does everything for me from like filling out our tax forms to actually doing the paperwork for my like relicensing and recertifications that I have to do as a physician. Like I do the the legal stuff. I have to do like taking the quizzes and all that stuff to keep up my CE. But he fills out my paperwork. And when you said that in the newsletter, I was like, well, no wonder some of my business organization stuff, like hiring people or just being in the weeds of the structure, it takes me away from the creativity that I love to do. It takes me away from that other part. So what do people do to find out their primary sparkotype, their shadow sparkotype, their anti-sparkotype, as you call it, or their kryptonite, and how do we apply this to our real lives?
1: So anyone can do, um, we have an online assessment, the sparkotype assessment. We built it you know, in the early days to help with the research. Over 500,000 people have completed it now. It's generated over 25 million data points, so really powerful information and insights. It is available for free to anyone at sparkotype.com. So you can take it um, and you will immediately get those three different indicators for you. If you're really interested in going a lot deeper into them, I happen to have a new book that, that literally devotes an entire chapter to each one of the types and takes you so much deeper into stories and use cases and applications and stumbling points and all these different things. And to me, the first thing that you do, you know, first... You, you do this and you say, does, does this land true with me? Like, do I feel that it's accurate and right? And then if you feel like, yeah, this actually is spot on and I feel seen, which is so much of the feedback that we get, then the question becomes, okay, so let me look at what I'm doing right now. And does it feel like the work that I'm doing right now allows me to express these things in the work? And for some people, the answer is yes, a lot. For some people, the answer is somewhat. And for some people, the answer is very little, uh, and maybe even none. And depending on how you answer, like then I would say you step into a process of reimagining and say, okay, so now that I actually know what this impulse is in me, and now that I know it's important, it's real, and it matters that it gets out in the work that I'm doing, are there ways that I can reimagine what I'm doing? Are there opportunities to do more of it in the work that I'm doing? to reimagine different tasks or activities or processes or projects or team or the way that I go about it in a way where I can step into this work and bring so much more of what makes me come alive to it so that I can get so much more out of it without having to make a much bigger, more disruptive change, which for some people down the road may end up being the option that makes most sense. But to me, that's always the option of last resort, never first resort. And and what most people will feel is they can actually get so much closer to that feeling that they want to feel through a process of gradual reimagining.
0: Jonathan, how do you think parents might be able to use this? Obviously, their children, if they're young, can't really fill out the quiz online, but I would imagine that it would be really amazing if you could have a little bit of insight and I'm sure your spark type emerges as you emerge as a human, as an, you know, grow into your adult years, but you did mention seeing some of these qualities as a kid. And I know for me, when I look back, I just, you know, I've been a midwife long enough. My husband was a high school teacher and a high school principal. So I've seen kids who were like in their teenage years. And now 30 years later, I see the professions they're doing. And very often who we are, we are going to become is revealed quite early. So how can how do you think maybe, and maybe you haven't considered this yet, but that parents might be able to use some of these insights to help support their children as they're emerging to really find their best place and their deeper purpose?
1: You know, I think it's fairly straightforward. First, know what these impulses are. Know that they're real and know that we all have them within us. And whether your kid is ready to take a formal assessment or not, as a parent, you're going to observe so much of this in them very often when they don't even see it themselves. And then maybe most importantly, know that one of the most, in my mind, powerful things that you can do beyond creating a sense of safety and trust is to help your child expose themselves to a wide range of experiences and activities and interactions that would allow them to dip their toe into all of these different ways to express themselves, to invest effort so that they can start to get a beat on which one of these types of things gives them that feeling that just lets them get lost in joy and meaning and just feels like, yeah, this feels right to me. You know, The more that we can actually introduce those experiences and encourage kids to explore them and not feel like they have to do one thing, but really explore all the different domains and then ask them to notice how they feel when they do them. So we cultivate a sense of self-awareness too. I think the better able our kids are to start to to put a finger on the pulse of what that thing is for them earlier in life and then be able to spend more time doing it.
0: I love it. Jonathan, what's your biggest hope for this book?
1: That people feel seen, that people feel like they matter, that people feel like that thing that has been burning inside of them from as long as they can remember, but very may very well have been stifled or snuffed out or tucked away because- of any number of reasons and societal expectations that it's real, that they're not alone in these feelings and that whether it's in the context of the work that you get paid for on the side or some blend, it's important to acknowledge them and to find a way to let them out.
0: Everybody, thank you so much for listening and joining me and my dear friend, Jonathan. And we have these kinds of conversations over Zoom and dinner and it's a real pleasure to... Be able to share this visit with him with you. Sparked, discover your unique imprint for work that makes you come alive by Jonathan Fields. I don't usually do a direct ask in my podcast, but I love this human being and want this human being to be incredibly supported. He gives a lot to the world. He has been an amazing and continues to be an amazing support for me. So if you are inspired and can spare the change and are interested, please grab his book. Jonathan, let's end with you telling everyone the best place to go for it.
1: So the Sparkatype assessment is at sparkatype.com. The book Spark is available at booksellers everywhere. And you can find me pretty much anywhere at jonathanpeels.com. And then on twice a week on the Good Life Project podcast.
0: Which is some of the best interviews with some of the most interesting and insightful people. Jonathan, thank you for joining me and for taking so much time. And thank you everyone for listening to Natural MD Radio and I'll see you next time.
1: Thanks so much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio.